Amen. Well, today we continue in our series uh, called Rerouting, which is our way of kind of modernizing the basic historical term of repentance. Repentance is when you know you've done something wrong, but we often don't really understand what that requires. Because repentance, much like going the wrong direction on a trip, is actually turning around and going the other direction. Actually making our actions match our words or match where we say we hope to be going. There's a lot of people heading down this direction saying, no, 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 I'm heading that way. And that's not, a, that's not actually with the way they live their lives. And so that's what today's sermon is going to be about. And to get there, we're going to start with one of the Beatitudes in the fifth chapter of Matthew. So we're doing this in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is divided into two sections. The first um, series of sayings called the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are the, well, today we are doing this one, blessed are the poor in heart. Sorry, wrong. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the pure in heart. We're doing this one and I conflated those apologies. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And then you end up having in this entire setup of, uh, of the way he sets up the Sermon on the Mount, you then have Jesus expounding what that actually means. How do we actually live out these kind of fluffy sayings of blessed are the pure in heart? What does it mean to be pure in heart? I'm going to focus for a minute actually on the second half of that, for it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I think we have some senses of what it is to be pure in heart, but that phrase, uh, seeing God, well, it's one that we, we just kind of make into like, uh, I don't know, semi-religious nonsense, right? Like, often we ask the question, well, did you see God today? Well, I don't mean that as some religious nonsense. I veered a direction I didn't mean to go. What I meant to say, what what I'm trying to get across here is, in the setup of for they will see God, nowadays we just say it, and it's a powerful thing, but we just say it as in, well, I saw God today, or I did this, or whatever. And we don't actually stop to think about how powerful it is to actually see God. It's just part of our semi-religious verbiage of uh, daily life. That's not the way it would have been 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, seeing God felt very different. I mean, we, we talk about seeing God, and it's a very normal thing for that to happen. So, like, we're on a ski trip, and a lot of times what we would do is say, where did you see God today? And it's just a kind of fluffy term for where did you see someone nice or someone kind or someone loving one another? We're going to get to where that comes from in Matthew 25 here at the end of the sermon. But I want to emphasize that 2,000 years ago when Jesus was first giving this sermon— That's not the way that would have been seen. In fact, seeing God for Jews 2,000 years ago was a much bigger deal. So to help you understand that, I'm going to tell you an Old Testament story about when Moses saw God and it was a massive deal. Have you guys ever been, uh, you know, seen Renaissance art or whatever and you see a picture and you're unsure whether it's Moses or the devil? It's really actually an issue. Uh, in this because Moses in most Renaissance art has horns. I'm going to get and explain this to you. I've done this before, but it's been probably years since I've explained this piece of arcane trivia, but it really matters for this. So there's a story goes like this. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites are hanging out in the wilderness and they are 
they are struggling to figure out which way to go and whether or not to follow God. Now, God is present, but it's really in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And Moses says, I want to see you. I don't just want to see like a cloud or fire. I want to see you. I want to see your face. And God says, well, if you see my face, you will surely die. Here's what I will let you do, though. I will pass by you, and you can see my back as I walk past you. Well, that's exactly what happens. Moses orders all the people into their tents, uh, and so he's the only one out there. He covers his eyes until God has passed. He's able to see the back of God. In the Latin, when they first translated that phrase, the right translation would have been, and Moses' face shone for days, and so he had to wear a veil over it because it was too bright. It's like the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the, the brilliance of God literally came into Moses' face, and he then shone to where they're like, man, you got to put something over that. Like, that's just crazy. The... Catholic Church predominantly from the 5th century on used a single Latin translation and the translators got it wrong. They actually, they, it was, a, it was a, the word like his face shone or his face was brilliant. It was a mistranslations and they wrote and he had horns. So when you see like Michelangelo has a beautiful stunning picture of the David, he has, or of, 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 uh, of Moses, he literally has horns on. And I'm like, is that the devil or is that Moses? I can't quite tell. Anyway, that's why. Historical mistranslation from a Latin, from a Hebrew text to Latin in the fifth century resulted in Moses with horns. My point, besides a historical piece that I find fascinating and I'm up here, is this piece of seeing God is it literally changed Moses. It's, it's actually so rare to have seen God because God was so holy and we are not that it actually in scripture was this thing where it changed him so drastically. So that when you realize that Jesus in the baby form is actually the face of God, that God made the final gap to where Mary could look God in the face and not die, is actually a huge gift of God even to become human where we could see him. And that the question of those who see are pure in heart, they will see God. What they're arguing is, what Jesus is arguing, is that actually when you are pure in heart, you actually are on the par with Moses. In fact, you're maybe even better than Moses because Moses could only even see the back of God. And the question is this, are we worthy of it? Are we actually worthy in the same way that Moses is to actually see the face of God? And this is why when we get to the scriptures of the Beatitudes, Jesus does not have a low bar in the Sermon on the Mount. He raises it. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, pure in heart's a hard thing because if I were to ask, is anyone here pure in heart and you raise your hand, you raising your hand would be proof that you are not. It's the issue with like naming your humble. Like the moment you name it, you're not, right? It is this paradox of, of like true religion, of truly following Jesus, of actually being like Jesus is you go, no, 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 I'm not worthy, right? The moment that you sit there and think, well, I'm pure in heart, you're not. The challenge though is what does it mean? How do we actually imagine that we could even approach it? So last week when we, uh, when we looked at Matthew, the goal was not just do not murder, but you must actually not be angry with your brother or sister. We're about to have a whole different set of things where Jesus raises the bar in the gospel of Matthew. 
And here's what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You see, there's a, there's a common theme that I've heard over the last 20 years of people trying to argue that Jesus has low expectations. Well, it doesn't matter. Jesus loves you anyway. It doesn't matter what you do. You know, we're just going to kind of ignore the kind of high expectations of Scripture because Jesus is good, isn't he? And so you can just love him and, and it's all going to be fine and you don't have to worry about it and lower expectations and just, just ignore any of the like hard stuff in the Bible. Does that sound like Jesus is lowering expectations to you? Does it sound like Jesus is just this kind of nice hippie that's sitting there going, hey, peace y'all, love bros? No, no offense to hippies, I don't know, you know. My point in this entire setup is that Jesus is actually sitting here and all the Old Testament rules that people are trying to hold people to, they're like, man, can you realize there are 613 laws in the Old Testament? Man, that feels hard. Have you tried to not look at anybody? Truly, Jesus is sitting there saying, listen, those 613 rules, that was actually kind of low bottom expectations. The real asset, the real goal, the real striving is, where's your heart? You see, Jesus, contrary to all of what you hear in kind of the wider world of people just trying to bring Jesus on their side rather than trying to figure out if they're on Jesus' side, is a lowering of goals and a lowering of expectations that I find unfounded in any of Jesus' sermons, period. In fact, what Jesus does is he raises expectations. He said, listen, you want to talk about murder? Don't be angry. You want to talk about adultery? Don't lust. You want to talk about any of these kind of things that exist in our world that frankly we're all guilty of at one point in time or another? You see, what Jesus has done is raised expectations and he's raised the grace because he knows that we're not all going to hit it. Let me rephrase that. Because he knows that none of us are going to hit it. You see, this passage is one of those, one of those that you could easily skip if you're a preacher. In fact, it's funny, Kim Myers preached last night at Saturday night, and her, uh, in her research on it, she found a commentator who said, this is the least preached passage in the Gospel of Matthew. <laughs> Understandable, right? It's the kind of stuff where you sit there and go, man, am I going to say this stuff out loud? Knowing that we're in the midst of brokenness knowing that we're in the midst of difficulty and that we are human and broken as well, what do you do with this kind of statement from Jesus? And I've heard this passage preached where it becomes condemnation, where it becomes, well, hey, you better watch out. I know you or you or you. I'm really trying hard not to point at anyone just because I have had someone after a sermon look at me and say, was that at me? And I go, listen, I have no idea what just happened in your life. Truly, I'm just trying to read Jesus and be faithful. But this is not actually about judging somebody. This is actually about an honest assessment of each of our hearts. 
This is an honest assessment of actually how broken each of us are. And so sometimes what we've done when we sit there and realize that the whole world is broken, we are all sinful and fallen short of the glory of God, a lot of us are like, all right, let's just take that high bar of Jesus, put it down here, and let's just tiptoe over it. But that would not be faithful to the Christ who came and preached to us. Because when you preach, you've got to raise the expectations. When you read scripture and you read Jesus faithfully, you've got to raise the expectations and raise the grace simultaneously. We have to take Jesus seriously. I don't know a single person who's read the Gospel of Matthew and actually cut off their right hand or gouged out their right eye. But the question is this, do you know anyone who's perfect? I mean, let's continue in this passage in the Gospel of Matthew because it gets even more difficult in some ways. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This entire setup, just process what Jesus is arguing here. You've heard that it was said, do not commit murder. I say don't be angry. Don't commit adultery. Don't even lust. You've got a, a low expectation of, of, of uh, how you're going to be honest about things. And he ends with this framework of saying, listen, your word matters. What Jesus is trying to get across, I think, at least to me in this setup, is not you're horrible people. You know, and you ought to, uh, but it is, we are, every human that has ever lived cannot match the standards that I have here, but that's not a reason to remove the goal of actually seeking perfection. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's actually the question of, what if his church actually was full of people who decided to follow Jesus every single day in such a way where they acknowledged that they had failed and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet today we're seeking perfection? You see, I can't come from a place of condemnation. I can't come from a place of judgment. Because there have been times in my life where I failed where I've lied, where I've messed up. And yet God loves me anyway so that today I can stand up and say, okay, God, what do you want from me? I think a lot of people stop expecting good things from Christians because they've known too many of them. My wife recently gathered a, a mentor, someone that she's chatting with, a preacher's wife. It's really, you know, being a pastor is a, uh, a privilege, but it's also a challenging thing because you hold so many people's hearts and lives in your hearts. And, you know, my wife is a part of that. And she recently had a conversation with a pastor's wife who's uh, been chatting with her about kind of the difficulties and the challenges, unique opportunities, et cetera, of being a pastor's wife. And 
just so y'all know, I'm just going to do this as a blanket statement. My family does not find funny jokes about stereotypes of preacher's kids being bad. <laughs> We're just going to do this as a blanket statement, okay? Mostly, well, I wasn't. Like, I mean, I was. I'm sinful and broken. But, like, the truth is we shouldn't lower the expectations for people, y'all. And one of the things she had was a conversation with this pastor's wife whose kids grew up faithful, still going to church in their 20s, and says, what happened? How were your kids actually, like, faithful when you know the stereotypes? And again, we don't find them funny. But how does that happen? And she said, you know, it's funny. I asked my kids that question. And they said, well, it was because dad was the same person at home that he was from the pulpit. The congruence of what they say and what they do. Of their public persona to their private persona. If it doesn't match, frankly, the, why would they trust us? Right? When Jesus is sitting here saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and you've got to keep your commitments to your spouse, and you've got to be honest and faithful, what you've got to do and what we have to do, and I've just got to be honest here, it's not just about preachers and kids. It's about everybody with our spouses, with our coworkers, with our kids, with our parents and our grandparents, because sometimes it's even hard to love them. How do we actually be who God has made us to be in our lives knowing that we're all broken? And it's why I work really hard up here to acknowledge my brokenness from the pulpit. Because I'm going to be broken at home sometimes. Because I'm going to sin and fall short of the glory of God in my own personal life as well as in my public life. That's going to happen. So if I stand up and pretend like the Pharisees 2,000 years ago that I'm flawless, then I think I've missed the message of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. I've missed the reality that we are actually all fallen sinners, broken, and none of us can actually match all of the goals that are set up in the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, that is not an excuse to keep doing it. And yet, that is not an excuse to just go, well, okay, well, I'll be, a, I'll be a public Christian and a private jerk. I'll be a public preacher or Christian or leader or whatever kind of person we are. And you know what? I'm just going to forget about it because Jesus has enough grace for me and I'll just keep sinning. Let's not worry about it. By the way, there's a whole section on this in the letters of Paul. The congruence matters. And so it's why up here I, I name that I'm not perfect. I don't want any of you to think I am. And I strive every day to have a pure heart. And I strive every day to imitate Christ. It's what Paul says when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because people seeing God through us is valuable. I think about that, that, past, the, that passage, the blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's not an accident that the metaphor for the church is that we are the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ, that we are literally the body of Christ. Because people's believing our story is wrapped up in our truth, wrapped up in how we live. Let's think about it this way. 
Jesus had these 12 messy, broken disciples who denied him, didn't really understand him. I mean, these fools, if you read the Gospels. And yet, when you think about what was about to happen, Jesus was about to die and rise from the grave. We have a crazy story to tell about what actually took place on Easter. How in the world are they going to believe this story? They're about to stand up in front of a synagogue and say, all right, death didn't hold him. He actually came back to life. Are they going to believe him when they lie on their business sales? Are they going to believe him when they lie about where they are or what they do if they don't keep their commitments to one another? You see, their commitments in their marriages, their commitments to their friends, their commitments in their business practices are wrapped up in whether or not people are going to believe that Jesus rises from the grave. It is all the same context. It's the same story. Our salvation, our ability to preach salvation, our ability to actually tell people the good news that God is with them and has not left them to their own devices and that we're not here to judge anyone but offer a better way. We are, our faithfulness to God and our striving after what God is doing is wrapped up in it. The other place where it describes basically seeing God and being God to others is in the 25th chapter of Matthew at the end. There's a passage here. The setup goes like this. It says there's a king or the son of man is going to come back. And when he does, he will be, he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And the king, when he comes back, will actually divide them out. And you want to know how he divides them out? Like this. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Then he says to people on the left, you didn't do any of those things. But I want to focus on you for whom you do these things. Our faithfulness in marriage, in business, in friendships, having grace for those of us and all of us who have failed in the past. But we have missed the gospel if we believe it gives us an excuse not to be all that God has called us to be today. Because there are people who are hungry and naked and sick and in prison, those who are lonely and isolated, those who do not realize that grace is offered to them, even them, our witness is wrapped up in whether or not we do what we say we're going to do. At home, in our workplaces, in our lives. I just truly believe that the lower expectations that we have in our world for what Christians ought to be like or church ought to be like or any of the rest of it, 
is part of the reason why we've had such a decline in Christianity over the last 30 years. And I don't want to be any part of that. We're broken. God has redeemed us. There's a phrase that we use sometimes in our liturgy which says this. Free us. We are bound by slavery to sin and death. Free us for joyful obedience. May we give that obedience to God and be who he's called us to be. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, I give you thanks for your son, Jesus Christ, for the privilege that it is to be your church. And yet, God, you have not lowered our expectations. You have raised them. Your grace is not an excuse to sin, but an excuse to rid ourselves of it, to be your hands and your feet, to love as you would love, to serve as you would serve. May we be faithful in our lives, in our marriages, in our communities in such a way that people might believe your story. Amen.